We came for salvation. We came for family. We came for all that's good. That's how we'll walk away. Aloha. Thanks for listening to the Layman's Lounge podcast, a ministry of thelaymanslounge.com. We're talking today with Thomas S. Kidd. Um, we're going to discuss, well, actually, we're not going to discuss. I'm just going to ask him, <laughs> how in the world did Jonathan Edwards and George Whitfield and Thomas Jefferson and just the rank and file Christians, not saying that Jefferson was, um, how did those how did those people justify slavery? Or, or is it, was it so baked in that it really wasn't a thing? Um, but then is that any excuse? I don't know. Okay. So Dr. Kidd's research professor of church history at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary and the author of, just to name a few here, American History, there's two volumes, um, George Whitfield, America's Spiritual Founding Father, God of Liberty, A Religious History of the American Revolution, The Great Awakening, The Roots of Evangelical Christianity in Colonial America, and hot off the press, Thomas Jefferson, A Biography of Spirit and Flesh. That's, that's again, that's Thomas Jefferson, A Biography of Spirit and Flesh. And before I forget, uh, he's on Twitter, and you could actually sign up for his, his new newsletters at Thomas S. Kidd. Um, so I wanted to ask, well, actually, first I want to ask you about country music. Okay. <laughs> what has your summer been looking like? I think this is your first summer up there now. What, what kind, have you been having a country summer or have you been having an urban summer? What kind of summer you got? Uh, well, maybe some of both. Um, I, I have been uh, listening to a lot of turn, turnpike troubadours. Okay. Um, I, I especially have been playing on repeat uh, Kansas City Southern by by Turnpike Troubadours. If you don't know that, that's that's not probably one of their best known songs, but it, you can find a great video of it on uh, on YouTube, a live performance. And I will with, link that one with the uh, with the Kansas City theme. It's 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 just very appropriate fitting. and timely. Um, <laughs> And then, uh, yeah, we're availing ourselves a little bit of uh, uh, the opportunities in Kansas City. So uh, we're going to see Alan Jackson here in a couple of weeks. Um, okay. He's doing one of these, you know, last ride kind of tours, which may not be his final tour, depending <laughs> on his health. But uh, uh, but any, anyway, we're, we're going to go take the chance, go see him. So love Alan Jackson. That line, what's that line? It's like a it's either a pyramid of cans or a pyramid of cans. It's so genius. Yeah. He needs, he needs some awards, some real awards for that. It's if he that. In, in the song, it's pyramid of cans. But I can remember when I was in high school, we used to substitute pyramid of cans. <laughs> I, just, I, just love, I just love that video. Where It's just, I, I want to get it tattooed on my back where he's, single skiing with his like denim jeans and a cowboy hat <laughs> jackson the coolest guy ever. that's cool okay what about you ever dabble in um in all of your studies you've done a lot of early american study does music ever come up as a as a like a 
in what ways does it come up at all? Is it just like, oh, is it pastime or does it ever like actually really sort of do something or yeah? Yeah, I mean, in in my professional work, I mean, I, I, it's it's mostly evangelical hymnody that is where it comes up. And um, I mean, I think I think it makes a big difference in the first great awakening about the use of Watts's hymns in particular. Um, and, and it's not only the kind of enlivening effect of singing, uh, Watts's hymns and, you know, Charles Wesley's hymns and so forth and congregational singing, but, um, they, they sometimes play a role in, uh, in people's conversion testimonies where they'll, they'll say, you know, I, I was struggling to be, you know, to gain assurance of salvation, and then, you know, the words of such and such a hymn came into my mind and, you, you know, the spirit gave me assurance and mm -hmm. this kind of thing. So, so they, the hymns uh, obviously, you know, play a, a really central role in a kind of new evangelical piety and almost in some cases, a kind of a quasi scriptural role, which I guess yeah. is not such a bad thing if it's a him based on scripture, <laughs> but uh, um, any, anyway, uh, but yeah, that, that's probably the main place where I, I talk about. So not, not so much, you know, secular music or anything like that, but, but enmity for sure. I remember I wrote you a few months ago, cause I went down this rabbit hole of, I want some like cool old timey. We're talking like pre like thirties and before like some cool, even just good old lyrics or whatever, but I came to notice, you know, as you well know, it's most of it is sort of like Methodist vibes. And it's a lot of like, um, man, the things that I would sing, they wouldn't be very encouraged me they just make me fruit check all day. And like, and uh, it's like, since, since times aren't so tough, I'm not so much worried about dying necessarily. Like a lot of those early, early, early songs were, but um I found a good one, but I forgot what it was now. Anyways, thanks for joining me, brother. Yeah, uh, you're welcome. <laughs> I want to ask you about Christian theologians and the rank and file Christians. But first, I want to ask you, because he's fresh on your mind, Thomas Jefferson. So here, we, here he is, principal author of the Declaration of Independence, including the, I think, the all men are created equal part, which like everyone's like, Martin Luther King just pulls from that, everybody. We got this great implicational thinker, like, like thinking is like so high. So surely, surely Jefferson's going to know how diabolical, you know, race-based slavery is, right? <laughs> well, I mean, he, and, and like a lot of people in the 1700s uh, who were involved with slavery, Jefferson readily admitted that slavery was uh, at least not ideal, um, if, if not just outright immoral. And, um, and it's striking that uh, one of the most providential things that Jefferson ever said in his career was about slavery that, and it's, a, it's kind of a famous line from Jefferson in the notes on the state of Virginia, where he said, I tremble for my country when I consider that God is just and that his justice will not sleep forever. And he's mm. talking about the indulgence of, of slavery uh, in, in the United States. And so, uh, 
you know, he he will readily admit this is not good for society. It's not obvious. It's obviously not good for the slaves, but it's not good for the white owners either, because he says it breeds, you know, laziness and indolence and and you know, kind of this craven dependence on other people to do your work for you. Um, but then the question is, what do you do about it? And that that's where Jefferson has much less helpful to say, um, because Jefferson thought that if, if you uh, precipitously emancipated the slaves um, that, you know, en masse, that it would probably lead to a genocidal race war between whites and blacks. Um, and he wasn't sure you know, who would, who would win that war. And so um, he, his idea, and this is, you know, it's partly a rational, a rationalizing of, of slavery and, and why we can't emancipate right now. But, but he said, if, if, if there could be a, a clear plan, a politically viable plan in place for freeing the slaves, probably gradually uh, compensating the owners. I mean, today we talk about, you know, compensation for slavery, but to the, the descendants of slaves, uh, for Jefferson, it, it would be more reasonable to have compensation for the owners. Uh, and then, and then the critical part for Jefferson is colonizing the slaves outside of the U S to avoid the race war. And he said, if you have all that in place, then we can move forward with emancipation. But until you have that, he, he said, there's no safe way to proceed with emancipation. So I'm super black and white that Lee, uh, and all I'm going to be able to think is through this one, like I'm a one issue issue voter kind of guy. I'm just, you know, to, to my praise or to my detriment. So I'm, so I'm thinking, oh, this guy is at a minimum a hypocrite, right? Because he would know, right? Like he's been entrusted with much as far as just even this basic level stuff. But now I'm going to think of, I mean, I don't know. I don't know the history of this, but you, 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 I mean, you wrote on George Woodfield. So I think I heard, heard you mention, I think I heard this right. I think you mentioned, and I laugh because it's insane that George Whitfield not only was a slave owner, but did I hear you right? That he like campaigned and advocated for pro-slavery. You're shaking your head. Yes. And I'm, I'm banging my head. What? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, uh, Whitfield is, uh, and and of course Whitfield is more of a contemporary of Edwards, who is also a slave owner. Um, but Edwards is not a pro-slavery activist the way that that Whitfield is. Um, and and uh, the, where it comes out with with Whitfield is that um, he is deeply involved in the early history of colonial Georgia, and it, when Georgia was founded in the 1730s. Uh, slavery was illegal there. And uh, it was illegal for the first 10 years of the colony's history, um, partly based on this idea that, you know, slavery is basically not a good thing and, and that they want to have it be more of a Christian moral kind of colony. Um, and and Whitfield uh, just came to the conviction, uh, especially after he became a slave owner himself, in the mid uh, uh, 1740s, that, that that Georgia's law was just basically stupid, um, and that Georgia was going to be economically backward for as long as they kept this uh, this ban on slavery in place, 
And so he really put a lot of pressure on the political leaders in, in Georgia to have slavery legalized there. Um, and it gets even worse with Whitfield, actually. Uh, and this was one of the new uh, bits of information that I found in my research on, uh, for the biography is that he actually uh, illegally introduced slaves into Georgia before uh, they, they overturned the law and made slavery legal. What? He did. And, and, uh, and I mean, in some ways you can imagine, I mean, it's right across the river from South Carolina and other people were doing it, quote unquote, right. and, and the law was not really being enforced. Um, and so he, he uh, a year or two before it, it became legal, he allowed slaves to be at his Bethesda orphanage and the, and the properties around it near Savannah. Um, and so he, he was so pro-slavery that he actually you know, broke the law to, to have slavery, is, slaves there. Did you say like, and they were working at his like, his orphanage? So is that like, so the first thing to my mind is like, oh, I need... <laughs> I'm sure everyone's thinking the same thing, right? Oh, well, that's like, what is it? I mean, that's like stealing a car so that you could, you know, drive the poor poor kids in town to basketball practice yeah. or something. Robbing right? Peter yeah. to pay Paul, as they say. But yeah, uh, right. yeah. Um, like, yeah, I mean, so he, he, they, what he wanted to do was to have uh, plantations around the Bethesda orphanage um, that would turn Bethesda and, and, and the orphanage is sort of the great charitable project of his career. Uh, and so he would, he, he wanted to turn Bethesda into this kind of self-sustaining enterprise um, so that you have plantations, you know, running a, around the, the orphanage itself um, with slaves working there and, um, and that they would, uh, you know, evangelize the slaves to, uh, and maybe give them some education. Um, oh, what and, a sweetheart. He's really, really scratching their back. I know. And so um, that was his idea. And, and, and so, I mean, it, you know, you're, you're raising the question, obviously, of how could this be? I mean, like how, how in the world does this make sense? Yeah. Um, and it doesn't make sense, uh, for sure, from a modern perspective. I will say that, I mean, Whitfield has... Uh, you know, like Edwards, Whit Whitfield and Edwards, I mean, they, they have very, very few people around them who are telling them that slavery is wrong and challenging them to, to take a different view. Now, Jefferson does. I mean, Jefferson has a few people that he trusts who tell him, you know, if you say slavery is wrong, then you need to emancipate your, your slaves. Mm -hmm. uh, Whitfield has about one person in his life who says things like that to him. And it's a, it's a German pietist pastor in Georgia. Um, but other than that, in the English and, uh, you know, English American evangelical community at the time, um, it, it's pretty well taken for granted that the Bible endorses some form of slave owning. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, you know, so you have to think about the dates on this a little bit. And, it, and it's illustrative, I think, of how much we're dependent on, on our context and the people we're around for what we believe is true. So there are obviously key English evangelicals who come out against slavery, um, like, you know, Wilberforce, John Newton, John Wesley, but all of that is after Whitfield dies. Mm. Um, 
so, I mean, I mean even John Newton, uh, what, you know, it's a wonderful story about, you know, he was a slave trader and then got saved, but it took him a long time after he got saved to come to the conviction that slavery was fundamentally immoral. Um, so there, there's kind of a big gap between his conversion, Newton's conversion, and then his anti-slavery advocacy. The conversion comes before Whitfield's death. Uh, the, the turn to anti-slavery advocacy for Newton comes after Whitfield's death. Mm-hmm. So you can see, it, you know, maybe, if we can be charitable, maybe if, if Whitfield had lived a generation later, uh, he would have sort of gotten a clue about this. Um, but, but, you know, it was not really much of a thing in his context. And, you know, I like to think if there was the, you know, the lockdown verse in the Bible that said, thou shalt not own slaves, that Whitfield would have said, oh, well, then I'm just not permitted to do this. Uh, I hope that 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 would be true. Um, But, but Whitfield didn't see see that. Instead, he saw slaves obey your masters. Um, Right. And and so I, I, I think it's tough. I'm not, you know, one to excuse his behavior. I'm trying to just more explain it in historic context. Mm. If you live in a culture that's so deeply attached to the institution of slavery, then for somebody like Whitfield, you're going to need some social pressure probably and a very clear biblical instruction not to own slaves to get someone like Whitfield to change his mind about it. But at least at the prevailing standard, um, you know, least case denominator or whatever, was it, I don't know why I think this, but was there a thing that they would say, oh yeah, at least Christians shouldn't own other Christians? Is that just in my mind? Why do I think that? I don't know. <laughs> there there was a long tradition for uh, European uh, Catholics and, and Protestants, that uh, slavery was really for heathens. Um, and, a, you know, that, that was the term that would be used at the time, that, that, uh, that, that Christians shouldn't enslave other Christians. Mm. So that issue uh, is, is a really live issue in English law in uh, the early 1700s because, and, and that's, you know, when Whitfield, before Whitfield is born and then in, in his childhood and early adulthood, because in the, the American colonies and the Caribbean, uh, you know, the British colonies in the Caribbean where there's so much uh, slavery, there are decent numbers by the early 1700s of enslaved people who start to become Christians. Mm-hmm people of African background uh, who are enslaved are also now becoming Christians. And some of them, uh, understandably, uh, they get baptized and then they, they say, okay, so I'm not going to be a slave anymore. Right. (laughs) Because as a general rule, slaves don't want to be slaves. (laughs) So So they say, I, you know, Hey, I thought that all this time that Christians weren't supposed to enslave Christians and you can actually see it starting to play out in, in, in the laws of these colonies that they, they uh, start making exceptions, basically, where they say uh, baptism does not bestow freedom. Mm. I mean, they're, they're, it's, it's that explicit. They, they have to say, look, we're very happy for you to become a Christian, 
but it is not going to change the worldly status, with, especially with regard to uh, slavery. Um, so you can see where they start putting that on the books and, you know, at Jamaica and in Virginia and South Carolina, uh, the, the slave colonies. And most of that is already in place legally and culturally by the time uh, the First Great Awakening begins. So, uh, you know, Whitfield is coming into a context where English people in general are pretty comfortable now with the idea that under these kind of conditions that Christians can enslave Christians. So I think of like um, Whitfield just inner searching all day, a lot of, lot of emotions and, you know, just real. So I would expect the Holy Spirit, like him just leaving the door open for the spirit to teach him. And then now if we think of Edwards, I mean, this guy, <laughs> this guy has nuanced he's nuanced everything i think there's like 400 pages out there that where he talks about how he sees like jesus in birds and you know the crashing of ocean waves like i mean surely surely if this guy could see it. so i almost want to i know it's so lame of me i almost don't want to even allow that for maybe for one second but that's it what what do you think well, I mean, so we're not, you know, we as people are not just sort of brains floating out in the universe somewhere. I mean, we're, we are very located, contextualized people. And we don't, we always, we always like to think, oh, you know, I'm an independent thinker. Mm -hmm. But the fact is, is that none of us are, you know, fully independent thinkers. So, so, you know, uh, Edwards is, uh, I think in, in his way, he's, he's an even more just conventional slave owner than Whitfield is, um, you know, Edwards has, through most of his adult life, he has a household slave or two. Um, and uh, he doesn't, you know, really advocate for slavery. I mean, there, there is one time where he gets involved with a, a pastoral discipline case uh, elsewhere in New England, where one of many charges brought against this pastor is that, you know, he thinks he's so fancy, and he's got a slave and, you know, but it's, it's not, Kind of attacking slavery per se, but Edwards does come in and say, "Well, now wait a minute. I mean, we're not going to hold this against him that he owns a slave." But, but uh, I mean, that's kind of a you know one case small issue. He's not an activist the way that Whitfield is at all, and he's not like dating one of his slaves like Jefferson was. Well, well yeah, dating is one word you could yeah. use for it. But, but um, any, anyway, uh, so so. You know, I think Edwards is very much of that kind of receiving mm -hmm. what the cultural norm is and not really questioning it. Now, to be fair, Edwards did criticize the slave trade mm -hmm. um, and, and said that, you, you know, it, we, we can't morally justify what the slave trade is. Uh, and, and, and he partly based that on, I, you know, to me, if you're looking for you know, a proof text to say that slavery, at least as it was practiced in, in, you know, the Atlantic world in the 1700s and 1800s is always wrong. It's the prohibitions, repeated prohibitions against man stealing uh, in, in First Timothy, for instance. And, and, uh, and, and Edwards knew that a whole lot of this whole slave trade, which ultimately enslaved millions of people, 
Uh, we think something like 12 million people were shipped across the Atlantic from Africa to, to North and South America during that 300 year period. Uh, and that a lot of those people were stolen, kidnapped. Um, and that, that that stands right at the base of what the whole slaving yeah. system is about. Yeah. And so Edward said, you know, um, so being a slave trafficker, being, you, you know, a slave merchant and shipper is, is just indefensible. You can't, you, there's no way Christians can be involved with, with that because it, it violates scripture very directly this, this way. So, you know, he did get there. Uh, and Whitfield had some of the same concerns, but, um, you, know, you know, from my view, if you've ever bought a slave, you're involved in the slave trafficking, uh, and so you're connected to man-stealing. Uh, uh, that's, that's what I'm confused about. That, that's what I'm confused about because of that, and I feel like that's so low, such low-hanging fruit, especially for these guys, these really introspective and deep thinkers. So I'm, I'm still, I'm just like, I just don't know. I'm, I'm wondering if they're sealing that off, you know, just almost like, you know, they. Yeah, I, no, I, I think they are sealing it off. I mean, and, and, you, you know, but I will say, I mean, I think it, it is easier to see this in, uh, you know, a modern culture that just automatically assumes that, that slavery is immoral. Uh, and it is. I mean, it, it, we're, we are right. They are wrong. Right. I mean, but but I mean, I, I talk with my students about this, about, you know, well, so if you're going to make the argument against slavery just based on the Bible, where do you go? And they and, you know, they they my students, you know, undergraduate students are typically not quite sharp enough to get the men, men stealers bit. Uh, as, as, but that is. I think the most direct prohibition that you're going to get in the Bible against what slavery actually entailed. But as far as this, uh, the institution of slavery, you know, in the abstract, just kind of in general, in theory, there is no direct biblical prohibition against it. I wish there was. It would make our discussion, well, you know, then we could just say, well, see, the Bible says don't own slaves. And then... And then they disobeyed it. And it's as simple as that, but it's not, it's not as simple as that. Yeah, sure. What about like, of course, this is me like in 2022, obviously. And I, you know, I don't know history or whatever that well, but so I'm thinking, okay, well, like, um, you know, this, the Sermon on the Mount and, and loving your neighbor at a minimum in my mind, like, oh yeah, if I'm, if I'm employed by someone and working for them, nine to five, or if I'm the boss of someone at a minimum, I've got to treat them right. Just, you know, and, and no one's kicking against the idea of like nine to five jobs. Right. So I'm living in that, but even I would know, ah, but then again, maybe that's some post industrial revolution thing. Right. Cause before it was like, ah, I don't like this. I hate it. <laughs> I hate well, it so much. Yeah. And, and I mean, the slave owners, especially when you get into the antebellum period, when, you know, the, the culture in the antebellum South changes about slave owning, where they say, you know, Jefferson had admitted it was wrong, but, you know, had the kind of, what can I do mm -hmm. uh, attitude about it? Well, once you get to the 1820s and 1830s, a lot of slave owning white, white Southerners, you know, would say, 
no, th this is good. This is a God-ordained good thing for us to own slaves. And in response to your kind of objection, they would say, these slaves are like children, right? I mean, and, and, and you don't, you know, even if a child wants to run away from home, the loving thing is not to treat them like an autonomous individual. Mm -hmm. The loving thing is to provide for them. And yeah. I, I mean, you know, there were Christian slave masters who I think probably took it seriously about you know, this is not the highest standard, but I shouldn't sexually abuse my slaves yeah. the way Jefferson did with Sally Hemings. Uh, uh, you know, I shouldn't physically abuse them. Uh, I should provide for them even if they get sick or they get old. Um, and, uh, you know, Whitfield and Edwards would have said, look, I, I'm teaching them about Christianity. I'm looking out for their eternal uh, welfare, unlike some masters who did not want the slaves to hear anything about Christianity. Mm -hmm. um, and so there, you know, the, the, the golden rule, in other, other words, doesn't sort of, to, to a modern view, I mean, that kind of answers all the questions. Yeah. Um, but from an early modern perspective, that, you know, the, the Christian slave master would say, uh, you know, if I was this slave, I would I would want to have a master like me who looks out for their welfare, just like I look out for the welfare of my children. Yeah. And so they talk about, you know, the Christian household and they get that idea from Ephesians and Colossians about yeah. you're talking about parents and children. And then you talk about masters and slaves and the relationship to them is quite similar. So I, you know, I just think of Philemon, obviously, and Onesimus, like this book is like, short letters based on it, it just seems like from just contemplating on that book a little bit is when they would really start to ask the the first layer question the second up to the 133rd um but okay so my question for you is i recently started reading frederick douglas's book and i don't know i know he like revamped it multiple times so I don't know which one I'm reading. I think I'm reading the later one, but, um, and I'm pretty sure he wrote, cause I'm finished. I'm pretty sure he wrote right around the time of the civil war, which was what, 1861 to 65, I think. Um, and the way he talks about it, and it sounds like he's, from what I read, a Christian, um, or at least he appeals to things and resonate with me. And to me, I, I feel like I'm reading a guy in 2022. He's just, he's like, what? In the same way right now that I'm saying, huh, Are you kidding me? You call yourself a Christian? He, whenever he wrote that, he had the same tone. Any thoughts on that? Because now, now we're past Edwards and Whitfield. Was there a time it shifted? And, and yeah. There is. I mean, uh, uh, I mean, it's a long and complicated story for sure. But uh, I mean, something changes with the American Revolution. I mean, you know, Edwards and Whitfield both died before the American Revolution. But then in the American Revolution, you get all this emphasis on liberty, individual rights, you know, that that sort of thing. And, and people start interpreting scripture partly informed through those sorts of ideals. So, you know, I don't think it's any coincidence that Jonathan Edwards is a slave owner. Jonathan Edwards Jr. is against slavery. Jonathan Edwards Jr. lives through the American Revolution. I'm not saying that's the whole story, yeah. but culturally something's changing there. 
Um, and, you know, at least, I mean, I think Edwards, Edward Sr.'s trajectory is at least heading in the direction of a critique of, uh, of slavery. So, uh, you know, most of the new divinity leaders, you know, kind of that next generation after Edwards, most of them end up being anti-slavery. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and, 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 I mean, at least one thing you can say about Edwards' theological tradition is that after Edwards, it becomes one of the great engines of anti-slavery thought in American history. Mm. So, you know, that, that's not nothing. But I- anyway, so then in the 1830s, um, and this is the environment that, that Douglas is, is reared in. I mean, he runs away and, and, you know, learns to read, gets connected with radical abolitionists in the North uh, who, are, who take a much harder line against slavery itself. I mean, you know, the, the, the new divinity folks had, had advocated, you know, gradual emancipation over a long period of time and a very you know, moderate kind of approach to this. People like, like real, real quick, did yeah. they, were they like, yes, this institution is a sin? Yes. Okay, so is it, is it super black, white, me say, well, that's wrong. No matter, that's wrong. You know what I mean? Just, I'm sorry, I'm interjecting that one question for you, and then you can continue on. And it was, sorry, it was what, what wrong? It, uh, the new divinity said, okay, we, uh, I think, yeah, we now see that this institution of slavery is wrong, and the way to fix it, um, and I assume without shaking, you know, you know, the economy too much or whatever, um, then we have to gradually cut back or however they would do it. And in my super black and my white mind, I'm like, to hell with the economy. Let them let them go. You know what yeah, I mean? So, yeah. And so right. so, me that, so, that's wrong. But I don't know. Right. I mean, uh, but I will say, I mean, um, I, I mean, I'm sympathetic, obviously, to the immediatist kind of right. position, too. But the northern states mostly adopted a gr- programs of gradual emancipation. Uh, and it did peacefully get rid of the institution of slavery. It just took an awfully long time in places like Pennsylvania. I mean, Pennsylvania has still has a few slaves on the eve of the Civil War, right? I mean, and 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 this is you know distasteful, but it, it also, in a process sense, is is you know way less disruptive than the Civil War. <laughs> Right? I mean, which, you know, you have hundreds of thousands of people die. And uh, I mean, I, I, I think, you know, from a Jeffersonian perspective, you do have to think, I mean, how was it for the freed slaves in the generation after the Civil War? It was terrible. Yeah. I mean, and, and yeah. I mean, that, you know, you, you don't have the Ku Klux Klan before the Civil War. I mean, but the, the immediate uh, emancipation of slavery leads to widespread race terror in, you know, in, in the South, especially, but some in the North too, from at least the 1860s to the 1920s. And then, you know, problems with voting and all, all, all kinds of stuff. So, and I not- read, you know, I, I was listening to those, they're, they're haunting, but I'm sure you've listened to those, like you could hear recordings from like the twenties and thirties of people who were slaves. It's, it's insane. But anyways, there, I remember one girl saying like she was in Texas and her old owners like threw them a nice dinner that evening and they're like, all right, you're free. And then they were, they were just screwed. They were totally, 
had nothing to do and they went back. And so, you know what, this makes me think, and we don't necessarily have to talk about this, but this makes me think of the abortion thing today where I'm like, um, many, many maintain that abortion, uh, there are less abortions under like, um, Democrat presidents versus if there's a Republican in office. And I just recently read a, a, uh, essay from, I think it's called action where they're like saying, well, California doesn't, doesn't offer up their statistics. So maybe that's not even real, but even if it is, or if it's not, regardless of that, uh, to me, I'm just like, no, yeah, no way. And then, and then there's the other people who this is me, this is where I'm whatever, but I'm like, no, they're like, and I almost don't know. I'm like, would I rather live in a world? We're getting super crazy here, right? I'm like, would I rather live in America where we sanction, we sanction abortion, um, and but there's less, and keeping in mind that a lot of times it's celebrated and it's like held, like yeah, or where we just go, no way. Yet there might be more. I, I hate that. That's I think those are like the alternatives. I hate it. Yeah. And um, anyways, I'm just I'm throwing that out there, but I cut yeah. you off no, on two I, different trails. Keep it's, going. It's, it's good. Sorry. I mean, I think there are parallels about, you know, um, if you have something, an institution like that that's patently sinful, um, is there any compromise, you, you know, that that's acceptable about it? And, and, you know, before the Dobbs decision, there was, a, a, you know, an acrimonious debate among evangelicals about you know, whether there's any, any way to sort of countenance, you know, yeah. just limitations on abortion. So anyway, I do think that there's some similarities, but that, but the immediatist position of what, I mean, that's the signature of William Lloyd Garrison, the editor of the Liberator newspaper, first in, in the head of the American Anti-Slavery Society. That only came out in the 1830s. Mm. Okay. Before that, almost all anti-slavery opinion was was gradualist, at least among whites. Wow. Um, you, you know, blacks, I mean, obviously most slaves don't have an opportunity to voice a public opinion about it. But, but uh, it, so you get to the 1830s and, and Garrison says it, that slavery is sin. They're talking about it. I mean, Garrison is not a traditional Christian, but a lot of the, the you know, immediate abolition people are evangelicals. And they're saying, this is the greatest national sin there is. We got to destroy this institution right now. That's right. A, that, that's the only morally acceptable thing to do. Well, that's I mean that's kind of a new approach, right? I mean, and so that's the the environment in which Douglas, Frederick Douglas, cuts his teeth as an abolitionist. Mm. Um, but he he and and Garrison actually end up falling out. You you may know over uh, whether the constitution is, is fundamentally pro-slavery or not. Um, Garrison says that it is. In fact, Garrison says that, it, quoting Isaiah, Garrison says that the constitution is a covenant with death and an agreement with hell. <laughs> he, he's your kind of guy, uh, you know, because it, he, he says it sanctions slavery. It, it's, it's totally immoral. Uh, it's it's totally morally unacceptable. Where Douglas says, no, no, we we should lean on the Constitution as a freedom document and and say, you know, it never mentioned slavery, uh, and 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 we shouldn't concede that it you know that it allows slavery. So 
anyway, I mean, Douglas, I do think he is a Christian of a sort. I mean, I, I, he's, you know, that's a, that's a complicated issue with Douglas, but he, he uh, uses Christian language to vilify slavery, but he also, as you'll note in the autobiography, all the worst slave owners and, and, and slave drivers are evangelical Christians. Mm -hmm. So, and and I don't have any doubt that he, you know, he's telling the truth about that, but, but there, I mean, it sort of cuts both ways with Douglas where I, I think he likes Christianity in the abstract, but I'm not sure he likes American Christianity very much. Uh, you know, and, that, and he has good that, reasons for that. That brings me to this one. So it, it's just hard because you're saying things baked in and, and I really am tracking with you. I hate it, but I'm tracking with you. So you did, you, you, I think you did the job there like on, you know, colonial era, but sounds like once the 1830s, Everyone knew it was wrong. And now what to, you know, pretty much everyone sort of knows it's wrong, but how we approach it. Okay. So in that, if that, and you could, you could clarify that, but within that assumed context, surely the, um, who, I don't know, we know the numbers, but is it mainly, well, it's like maybe everyone's kind of quote, quote, a Christian back then. Right. There was, so it's even hard to tell, but at the end of the day, like brass tacks, who, who was fighting for, you know, the end of slavery, rather, regardless of when and where is it, is it, I mean, is it mainly just sort of quote, quote, weird nominal American Christians? Um, or is it like the fundamentalists or is it like the Baptist or the Presbyterian or is it, I don't know if you could just give us a high level. In other words, was it the Christians who helped end slavery, but they're also the same chumps who like, you know, profited from it. Well, I mean, uh, the the African American population by you know the eve of the Civil War is becoming pretty strongly Christian, and those who have an opportunity to voice opposition to slavery uh, in the African American community do so. But I mean, there's millions of slaves in America at, on the eve of the Civil War. Most of those people never get to say anything about it mm. publicly. Uh, Douglas is, you know, a very unusual case that way. Um, so then among whites, um, I would say that th there, there's the full range of Christian, and I, and I mean among that, you know, evangelical Christian, uh, reformed Christian um, uh, opinion about the institution of slavery, ranging from, um, you know, the radical abolitionists, which are, uh, almost exclusively northern, um, few, very few white southerners who sort of, you know, get the memo and and but they end up having to go to the north if they're going to be outspoken abolitionists because mm -hmm. they they'll be jailed or maybe lynched in the south if they if they're outspoken abolitionists. Mm -hmm. um, but then, uh, you know, that the average white southerner on the eve of the Civil War is at least casually pro-slavery and the average white Christian in the South uh, in, in, on the eve of the Civil War is, uh, is at least casually pro-slavery. But if, theologically, if, are they as well? Like, do they... They, they, they would, I yeah, know. I mean, they would take, um, you know, Whitfield's type of position. They would take uh, the, the, you know, the household codes as sanctioning mm -hmm. uh, slavery as part of a Christian household. Gotcha. Um, 
And then uh, there were a good number of white Northerners who were pro-slavery. Um, and, and so it, it's, I, I mean, among evangelicals, it's maybe half of evangelical white Northerners are anti-slavery. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and then a, a pretty small segment of those uh, people like John Brown, who is uh, probably mentally ill, but but he's also an evangelical, and he's the one who you know has the right on Harper's Ferry, and also uh, mm-hmm. murders some people in in Kansas in the mid eighteen fifties over the slavery issue. But he he's you know an absolute anti slavery fanatic, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, just just I mean, Frederick Douglass thinks he's crazy. Uh, you know, just he's too he's too zealous and and has these cockamamie schemes to destroy slavery that are never going to work. So, uh, you know that that's about the landscape. But then then you get into the Civil War and and the whole equation changes because, you know, Lincoln is uh, certainly no traditional Christian at all, even though he he grows up in a traditional Calvinist Baptist family. Um, but uh, he's morally opposed to slavery, but you know the anti-slavery thing is is not his agenda going into the Civil War. It's preserving the Union. But then he realizes, sort of brilliantly, wonderfully, that emancipating the slaves in the South is the way they're going to win the war. Mm. Uh, and and so he kind of has his cake and eats it too. Oh. Um, and and so it, it, I think that the great irony to me is it's the most pro-slavery people in the South who push for secession. And then the creation of the Confederacy and the start of the war is ultimately what's going to destroy slavery. It's not, it's not really the abolitionist movement that does it. Oh, well, so this question is probably like a James Bratt question, but since I'm a bootlicker of the neo-Calvinists and the Kuyperians and all this, I got to ask, I don't know if this is so far removed from your world, but maybe, you know, but I've got to assume the folks up in Michigan are thinking, you know, in Iowa or whatever, they're think they are they're always thinking culture and bigger picture, not just souls. Do you know if anyone up there being awesome, like and like saying, what in the hell are we doing? <laughs> Gouge your right eye out. You know, do you know? Yeah. Well, <laughs> you know, I mean, regardless if they're Dutch, you know, the Dutch or not. No. But, uh, people like Brad definitely would be able to tell you more precisely about that. But I mean, though, you know, those people are going to tend to be uh, certainly supportive of the union cause in, in the civil war. And I think that there were, uh, you know, abolitionists uh, among them, but, you know, there were, I mean, people, you know, like Charles Hodge and so forth were, were definitely not abolitionists. Mm. Um, and just Who's thought, who, who can I be excited about? This is such a depressing interview. Who can I go? <laughs> I am so glad, you know, like at least here in America. Well, I mean, Frederick Douglass is a good choice. He's not, I mean, he's not an evangelical, but he's, he's, <laughs> he's a great guy to, to like. Um, and, and, you know, his speeches and writings are so wonderful, but uh, uh, I mean, they're, you know, the, the Tappan brothers, uh, Lewis and Arthur Tappan are Northern evangelicals who are, they're not insane like John Brown, but they're militant anti-slavery zealots mm. fund a lot of the, the abolitionist movement. Um, you know, they, so they're the, the, the abolitionist movement from the 1830s to the 1860s in the North is deeply uh, populated with 
with white evangelicals. Um, and, and so that, that's true. It's just that there are just as many, and I think more uh, white Southerners, especially, but some white Northerners who are deeply, deeply pro-slavery. Mm. Um, and so it's kind of a wash and that, that is why among other things, you see the great denominational schisms of right. the 1830s and 40s is because white, you know, Northern and Southern Christians can't agree about whether, uh, you know, slave owners should be in denominational leadership. I mean, that's the basic issue. Um, and so this so the Southern Baptist Convention is created. The mm. Southern Methodist Church is created. Presbyterians split over somewhat related issues, but it's, it's also about revivalism for, for them. Um, but somebody like Hodge just says, you know, look, th this is not an issue that should divide the church. But in saying that, he's saying, you know, this isn't a top tier uh, moral issue for Christians to divide over. And oh, um, my gosh. from a more modern perspective, that's, that's no good either. You're so, this is so helpful. You're so good at this. I hate it. I hate every second of it. <laughs> you're, I, I'm grateful. And it's like, so I think the answer, I already know the answer, but should we, should we freaking take sledgehammers to Jefferson on Rushmore and, and, you know, use, uh, use a Jonathan Edwards shirt as my homeboy shirt to like mop up when my child pukes on the ground and, <laughs> or that's, well, a big, I feel like I would very interested on your, but maybe we should burn our Carl Bart books, not just because he's partially a little whatever, but because he's got he's got a mission. And surely he knows it's wrong. So maybe we should cancel Bart. I don't know. Just joking there. But as far as these people who were like, man, really products of the time. And now you're bringing clarity. I'm like, ooh, yikes, this is rough. Yeah. Well, I mean, on this issue, I mean, if you speaking of, you know, somebody to celebrate, I mean, now being at Midwestern, I mean, Charles Spurgeon comes off looking great on, on this issue. Obviously, you know, there's much less at stake for Spurgeon because he's in England and there are no slaves there. But, but I mean, so there, there are people, you know, the Tappan brothers are not as well known, but I mean, there are people who on the slavery issue come off, you know, looking quite admirable. Um, and, and, and so the thing about, about canceling people, I mean, I don't, I don't, Personally, I, as a Christian, I don't really care that much about the Jefferson monuments and stuff. I mean, I, I think Jefferson is fascinating um, and important. Um, I'm not, I'm not like a Jefferson fan, quote unquote. So, I mean, I, I don't. I mean, we put up monuments and then we take them down, and I, I'm not all that concerned about that. I think it would be foolish to not study Jefferson. Um, and I, I try to understand him and admire the things that were good about Jefferson, for instance, his commitment to religious liberty, I think is, wow. uh, from right. my Baptist perspective, is an almost unalloyed uh, good. Right. Um, so there's, there's good and bad. I find, you know, Whitfield is, is a real problem uh, on, on this issue. Uh, still, you know, God blessed his evangelistic ministry because of God's grace, Um but there were some real problems there. I find Edwards, you know, more of just a sort of a receiver of, you know, the culture that in which he, in which he lived, it was still wrong for him to own this, the household slaves, but you know, Whitfield takes it to a whole other level. Wait, now I'm a little bit confused though on Whitfield because wasn't Whitfield just as much 
operating in the the mo of his day or or you really think well yeah actually he should have known better well i mean that i think the to make them fully parallel you would have to say what if edwards had lived in georgia mm. you, you know what i mean it's it's being yeah. dictated all and wow. you know whitfield has key supporters in the south i mean that's how he ends up as a slave owner mm. is that his he has plantation masters who convert under his ministry in South Carolina and they start just giving him slaves. Oh man. And that, that is a moment where you see a little glimmer of moral hesitation on Whitfield's part. Should I do this? You know, he didn't own slaves yet. Should, should I do is this? Tithe. He's getting tithes of humans. Uh, well, something like that. Yeah. And, and he agrees to take, the gift of these of these enslaved people oh, man. um so that that would have been the moment where what but you know edwards just doesn't i mean he's operating almost exclusively in new england new england has slaves but it's not it's not woven into the system there the same way but anyway i the the, the point i would always make on this whole cancel issue is do we know that we would have done better than these people Wow. Um, and and the fact is, we don't know. Even I mean, even as lousy as Jefferson is, um, you, you know, it. I know that if we were born into a white slave owning family in 1743 in Virginia, the way that Jefferson was, it's a lot that we would have been slave owners or as as male children, we would have been slave owners ourselves. And we would have died slave owners. Um, that's just a fact. So, I mean, you know, we can wag our fingers at these people and say, look how better, much better I am. Look how much more, more progressive morally I am. But we're not living in their context. And we don't, we don't have any assurance that we would have done better than... Now, I mean, Jefferson, you know, with the Sally Hemings bet, I mean, that, there was some really pretty extreme... <laughs> You know, yeah. you know, behavior that that was associated with and this. She's like, was she like fifteen or thirty years younger than him as well? Yeah, she was about thirty years younger than him, yeah. and and so there there were just a lot of problems there. But but anyway, the the point is is you know if we have access to kind of unlimited power over other people, what would we do? Um, that's a kind of classic you know moral dilemma, and I don't think we should be cocky and think. Oh, I, I, I would have just, you know, passed the test with flying colors. Yeah. Um, and, it, and, you know, I think it, it just reminds us about how corrupt we are, um, yeah. how, how uh, influenced by the surrounding culture, how easy it is for us to excuse sin uh, when, uh, you know, everybody else is doing it. Yeah. And, um, you know, uh, it reminds me that, you know, there's no one good, no, not one, yeah. except for you know, a certain carpenter's son from Nazareth, right? I mean, so that, that I think that's a Christian view of these, is that we absolutely should criticize these people, especially when they did things that were out of step morally, even with their own time. Mm. Uh, but there needs to be a, a sort of check on that. Of, of, I don't think we're given to, to, as Christians, to say, I know I'm better than that person. Um, because you're not, you know, living their life. Dr. Kidd, I, before this interview, I literally wagged my finger and thought I was better than Edwards. So I'm like, <laughs> screw that guy. <laughs> but now I'm like, oh, you, you said 
do you this is a question you posed to me like the undergrad i am you're like do you know you would have done you know the other and i'm like oh crap <laughs> yes i would have i have the spirit <laughs> he teaches me you know i'd gouge my eye out so anyways dr thomas says kid um so good most recent book thomas jefferson a biography of spirit and flesh i know you write like think 1500 a day or whatever just a uh, thousand oh just give it to me <laughs> um yeah follow follow him on twitter at twitter at thomas s kid you have anything uh, as we close out anything i know you've got probably a hundred things in the works but anything that you want to share with what what's fresh uh, the main thing I'm writing these days is a, a new book on the second great awakening. So um, that's what's taking up my time these days. All right, brother. Thank you so much for your time. Go listen to some good music. Jimmy Driftwood, uh, not Jimmy, Jimmy Rogers is a scumbag, but our family. <laughs> great. Thanks. We came for salvation. We came for family. We came for all that's good, that's how we'll walk away. We came to break the bad, we came to cheer the sad, we came to...